This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to listen in on iTunes or view on YouTube this edition of the Thrive Podcast. Let us know how we are doing. You can email me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net. I'd love to hear your comments, positive and negative. Uh, we want this Thrive Podcast to be something that you find valuable and useful to you. So please let us know how we are doing. I am very delighted today to have the opportunity uh, to welcome to the Thrive Podcast. And I think this is the first time that we have had someone who is not local do the Thrive Podcast. This is Dr. Leslie D. Callahan, uh, who is the pastor of the St. Paul's Baptist Church of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Callahan is serving as our guest uh, for our annual spring revival. And I asked her if she would be willing to uh, talk on our Thrive podcast, and she was gracious enough to say yes. I think that she has an interesting story, and she has interesting points of view that I think we might find valuable. Dr. Callahan, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. Oh, th thank you. This is a wonderful opportunity to do something new. Usually as a revivalist, I don't get an opportunity to be on a podcast, so I'm glad to be with you. Tell me how you went from West Virginia to Philadelphia. What, 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 what's the Leslie Callahan story? So that's an interesting question. I, it's something I think about, I've been thinking about pretty much since I moved to Philadelphia. And when I'm testifying, I often say that even in retrospect, in hindsight, there's really no path from where I started to where I am. Um, the short answer, and I think the most truthful answer is incredible grace and favor from God. Now, um, there's the nuts and bolts. Um, I graduated from high school and went to college in Massachusetts. I went to Harvard. Um, I was there for four years, um, graduated, and then for one year after graduation, lived in the city of Boston um, at a time in the early 90s when there was an economic downturn. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was temping, um, knowing that I was on my way to seminary. And so that year uh, between college and seminary, I uh, applied. And from there, I went to New York where I did a Master of Divinity at Union Theological Seminary mm -hmm. in New York City. Um, after that, um, I applied both to churches and to doctoral programs and um, was admitted to um, both Union and to Princeton University uh, for my doctorate and moved to Princeton. While I was in Princeton, um, as a student, as a doctoral student, I also worked in a church. I worked at the First Baptist Church of Princeton as mm -hmm. the Minister of Christian Education. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was in Princeton for six years, and then uh, it was time to graduate and to go on the job market, and I got a job um, on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Once I got to Philly, I, um, I actually had a couple of job offers, and I chose Philly um, because it had all of the wonderful things that you want in a big city, 
um, but it didn't feel unwieldy. Um, it wasn't as cold as Boston. It mm-hmm. wasn't as fast as New York. Mm-hmm. Um, good airport, um, but it was a city where people drove. Uh, it was a little closer to my home in West Virginia than I had been in some times. Not close, but closer. Mm-hmm. And so I chose Philadelphia and really have over the last, I've been in Philly now since 2002, so 17 years, uh, over the last 17 years really have made a home for myself in Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, affiliated with the church, made friends both in work and in church, and um, over time really came to regard Philly as my home. Now I've been there longer than anywhere uh, other than West Virginia, and in the next couple of years, I will have been there longer than West Virginia either. So um, that's how I got to Philadelphia. Um, Harvard, was that an aspiration of yours, or did or, or did Harvard come looking for you? How did that work out? So I, um, you know, one of the things I I did as a young person um, was to shoot for what I thought was the best possible outcome. Mm-hmm. I, um, I like to say that the thing that I, I got from my parents and the people I grew up with was that anything is possible with God. Mm-hmm. My father, mind Cole, my mother um, was a stay-at-home mother and wife. Um, I didn't know anybody Um, When I started thinking about going to Harvard, I didn't at that time know anybody who had gone. Um, But I believed anything was possible with God. Uh, Over the course of time, uh, I was a a participant in a summer program that was about college readiness Mm -hmm. and uh, really about um, grand aspirations. And in that context, they started to talk about strategy for going to whatever schools one had in mind. Um, And so um, I began to think that Harvard was a possibility um, and applied there um, and and was accepted. And so um, I went. Harvard wasn't a particularly good place to be as a young black woman in the early 1990s, late 80s, early 90s. Um, Boston is cold. Um, it's cold in it's cold both literally and figuratively. It's cold. Um, the the winter is very long. The spring and summer are short. Mm-hmm. Um, even even in comparison to where I live now, which is I guess six hours south by car. Um, overcast most days. I discovered as an undergraduate that I. Uh, suffer from seasonal affective disorder. I was depressed a good bit of the time when I was in Boston. Um, But again, as a a young girl in West Virginia, I thought, you know, how do I uh, prepare myself in the best possible way to do and be whatever Mm -hmm. it is that the future holds for me? Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, I picked Harvard because, you know, folks thought it was the best. And I thought, well, let's shoot for the best. Sure. Um, and and you know, the degree has opened lots of doors. People look twice. Um, but it wasn't a, an, I, you know, if I had it to do again, um, I don't know. I don't. 
if I knew then what I knew then, I would probably do exactly the same thing. Um, if I knew then what I know now, I would at least have done what even some of my colleagues did when we were at Harvard, which is to spend a semester or a year at a black college. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I might have gone south, so I wouldn't have been so cold. Um, <laughs> I might have done, if I knew then what I know now, I might have made other decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, even as I see the ways that the the direction I took at the time, um, you know, it's sort of, it's added up to the life I have. Mm-hmm. Um, in certain kinds of ways. You are a theologian and you are a womanist theologian. I didn't know what a womanist theologian was until I met my wife and she helped me to understand that uh, uh, womanist theology is a particular subset of Christian theology. Would you explain, please, from your perspective, what a womanist theologian is and how it affects your pastorate and your ministry? So I think the thing that um, is important to understand about theology, no matter who's doing it, is that we all do theology. We all think about God. We all uh, speak about God mm-hmm. based on our social location. The kinds of questions we ask about reality, about the world, about God, about what's true, and even how we understand the ministry and life um, and salvific work of Jesus Christ is all related to to the troubles we have, to mm-hmm. the to our social location. Uh, what's salvation to somebody who's hungry other than to be able to eat? Right. Um, and it, it is hard to make a case that salvation is meaningful to somebody who is hungry if it does not include their being able to eat. Every person brings their questions, brings their issues, and sees the world and sees reality through their social location. Um, Womanist theology um, emerged as a theological movement in the 80s and the 90s as black women began to do the work of theology, taking seriously their social location, Mm -hmm. taking seriously the kinds of questions and experiences that black women have, both historically and in a contemporary setting. Um, it follows and is a um, is in in very deep conversation with other forms of liberation theology, particularly and and specifically black theology, mm-hmm. and the work of such theologians as James Cone and others who articulated um, something. I, I I think I started where I did because I think this is right and persuasive that. The meaning of Jesus for us today, the meaning, the understanding of God for us today speaks to and responds to the sorts of questions that today asks. And so even as we read back into um, Christian history and theology, Mm -hmm. we read history and theology through the lens 
of our own contemporary questions. Um, Cone was coming of age as a theologian in the midst of the um, the crisis of the 1960s mm-hmm. and was dealing with his deep anger and pain and suspicion as a black man in a society where black humanity was degraded and dismissed. And he began to look seriously and to, to challenge the the undergirding theological per- perceptions, both of white folks who um, could cry holy and do all kinds of terrible things, right. Right. Um, but also of black folks who um, needed to make sense of a of a common Christian heritage, or a, a putatively at least common Christian heritage, mm-hmm. in light of these other these other factors. So he began to, to, to question uh, fundamentally whether a, a Christian theology that does not take seriously the poor and the marginalized was actually Christian at all. And he wrote work that, that emphasized, that really drew from the Gospels themselves mm-hmm from Jesus's social location mm-hmm. and as a historical figure to say that God, uh, when God became flesh in the incarnation, God chose marginal people. God chose the poor. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, as he announces it in Luke chapter four, he announces it in a ministry to the poor, mm-hmm. to folks who are on the margins. Uh, folks were persuaded of that. Um, and uh, even some of Cone's own students, um, as they started to do the work of theology, taking seriously Cone's assertion, Cone and others, he wasn't the only one, mm-hmm. but he certainly was um, probably the, the, the most significant, and he had uh, dozens of students. Um, as, as women began to do the work, um, they said there's some pieces that are missing from black theology in so far as it doesn't consider the peculiar status of black women. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, there are things that are missing from feminist theology, which was done largely by white women, as it doesn't consider uh, the kinds of questions that arise from the the peculiar perspective that black women have Mm -hmm. as black and female at the same time. Mm So when time came to figure out what you call this, uh, this this theologizing, this thinking that takes seriously the social occasion of black women, so is it black feminist theology or is it feminist black theology or is it, what do you call it, Mm -hmm. right? Do you privilege the black? Do you privilege the feminist? Mm -hmm. Long about that same time, Alice Walker coined Uh, the term womanist, Um, not in a theological context, in the context of her work and her essay writing, her novels. Uh, And it captured both sides, both black and woman, both woman and black, and the peculiar nature of women's identity, black women's identity as black and woman at the same time. 
Um, it also, uh, Walker's work, the work of Zora Neale Hurston, which um, ethicist, theoethicist, uh, Katie Cannon worked on, um, uh, Zora Neale Hurston's um, work, um, literary works by black women, um, uh, all of those works sort of help to mine the concerns that black women have, the ultimate concerns, therefore the theological concerns that black women have. Mm -hmm. And so the term womanist came from Alice Walker, uh, came to be applied to theology and ethic, the theological and ethical work of women, often s scholars who were trying to understand what the peculiar social location of black women provides in terms of our understanding of God. Mm -hmm. So that's the the gist of womanist theology is that it is the it is the exploration of God and all things ultimate uh, through the lens of the experiences and the questions that arise from those experiences for black women. So as a, a as a liberation theologian, as a woman theologian, womanist theologian, how does that play in the very practical, everyday uh, work of a pastor? You pastor sure. a church in Philadelphia, St. Paul's Baptist Church of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm sure that it shapes sure. the, the, the form that your pastorate takes. Sure. Could you help explain that, please? So, so one of the things I think that that principally happened for me as I um, and I, when I went to Union Seminary in the early to mid '90s, um, it was one of the places where womanist theology and ethics were really being talked about. James Cone taught there. Dolores Williams, who was one of the uh, really significant uh, theologians of womanist theology at that time, their whole generations. Um, that have followed both of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they were both at Union uh, teaching when I was there. Uh, part of what the womanist perspective does for me is to um, make me aware of and take seriously the experiences of all of the people with whom I minister. Mm -hmm. uh, and how that, how that shapes I am, I am very careful about what I say about God in particular, not only, about, not only for the sake of, of trying to, to maintain some sort of orthodoxy with related, in relationship to Scripture, but also to take seriously the implications of what I say about God for the lives of the people who might believe me. Mm -hmm. For example, one of the insights that, that uh, Dolores Williams is famous for is um, a, a conversation about the way we have treated atonement um, and the notion that suffering is salvific or redemptive. And one of the things that she, I think, rightly said is that the notion of a surrogate, having someone uh, suffer in your place, which mm -hmm. is what we have said Jesus did, right. has been used, especially on black women, to convince black women to take the suffering that we experience in the society. Mm -hmm. 
Um, she talked about the surrogacy of black women who nurtured white folks' children and often were told to accept their Jesus role as the surrogate mm-hmm. and to, to accustom themselves to suffering mm-hmm. because Jesus suffered. Um, she, she questioned whether uh, God's good intentions for what black women in particular, but for humanity in general, includes the imposition of suffering on people. And she also raised the question about how that empowers other people. Isn't it funny that some people get told to embrace suffering and other people get told to rid themselves of right. it? Right, right. Isn't it funny how we see this uh, all the time? Um, something terrible has, happens to black people, particularly something like the Mother Emanuel massacre. Um, and immediately black people get asked, do you forgive them? As if the, the expectation is that it should be easy for us to forgive. Like, we're supposed to be the super Christians. Nobody asks. After 9-11, nobody asked America, do you forgive the folks who terrorized you? Would never have been an expectation. Forgiveness was on nobody's lips. Yeah. Why is it that some people— In fact, it was retaliation. Precisely. We're going overseas. We're going to bomb these people. So why is it that when some people experience terrorism, Mm -hmm. most terrorism, dead people, People are people have died. Right. It was a political act in both instances. Right. Why is it when Dylan Roof comes in and shoots up an mm-hmm. AME church, we get asked to open our hearts in a Jesus like way mm-hmm. and forgive? Why do we feel like we should? That's but so that's a theolo- so what what I think black theologians and womanist theologians would, would point out is that that's actually a theological problem that the distribution of power causes people to read the story differently for other people, Mm -hmm. depending on where they stay, Mm -hmm. where they sit. Nobody felt any kind of tension about Christians in Congress heading off to war to retaliate after Mm 9-11. Whereas people feel very odd about black Christians heading off to find Dylan Roof I'm, I'm not suggesting that that would have been no. the right, but but for the, me, the, the issue is the, that the power. The problem is, I believe in forgiveness. I, I believe I believe in the power of forgiveness. I don't believe that the that that the standard of forgiveness should be lowered for black folk. I think the standard of forgiveness should be raised for everybody else. So I think that the the issue is how is power wielded. Mm-hmm. In the back to the to the original question about womanist theology, mm-hmm. I think the question that 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 liberation theology in general raises, and womanist in particular through the lens of black people, black women, how does theology and what we say about God, not only what questions come from our social location, mm-hmm. but how does what we say about God, what we say about what's good, what's right, what's holy, what's ethical, how do those, the way we answer those questions, how does it reinforce disparate power relationships in mm-hmm. the here and now? Mm-hmm. It is not accidental. It is not accidental 
that the version of Christianity that black people got from enslavement and the one that black folks are often held to even now is the kind that attempts to make us pliable and docile and comfortable with a circumstance in which the people who have power are not us. Mm -hmm. That's not accidental. How we tell the story, how we vision God, how we understand what God is up to has a direct impact on how we interact with one another. That I think, so to the question of how it, so to the question of how it plays in my pastoring, um, it involves a, a keen awareness that there are consequences to proclamation. Mm -hmm. So as it relates to preaching in particular, what happens if people do what I say? Who benefits? Who suffers? Who, um, what the vision of the faith that I'm offering, the vision of the, the, the faith community that I'm offering, mm -hmm. who benefits, who suffers, mm -hmm. who gets left out, who gets invited in. Mm -hmm. My theological training um, and commitments make me take that very seriously in any sermon I preach. Mm -hmm. um, most recently, it's caused me to really ask questions as I preach sermons about healing, about how folks who are disabled, especially permanently disabled folks, feel mm -hmm. about what I say about about healing, um, yeah. about um, you know how do blind folks feel when we when we use blind as a metaphor for ignorant, mm -hmm. foolish, outside of the community of the faithful? And how do we talk about the miracle stories of Jesus, for example, um, as, what they, as, as what they are in the Bible, which is signs. Mm -hmm. They're pointing to something. Jesus, Jesus is, the healing stories are telling us a story about who Jesus is and about and Jesus says it himself. This is your, this is I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to make clear to you uh, the story of of you know uh, who sinned this man or his parents that he's born blind, right? The, uh, none of that. The upending of the certainty that we know, based especially on physical um, ailment or physical disability or physical ability. Um, I'm taking seriously. So how do I talk about this in a way that doesn't seem to reinforce condemnation of people who have various kinds of ailments, be they physical or emotional or mental? How do we talk? How do I? Because if I if I don't if I'm not careful, then I could be heard to be saying something about God, about God's embrace of people. Mm -hmm. who don't get healed, mm -hmm. who are not well. Mm -hmm. Some folks who are born unwell. Mm -hmm. What I say about what healing looks like, what I say about ho what wholeness looks like, might be read 
I mean, that, that the instance that I just described where Jesus and the disciples are, are having conversations and they say, who sinned? Like the assumption that somebody did something wrong. Mm-hmm. We sometimes harbor those faulty assumptions too. We do. And so in every instance, what I'm trying to do as a preacher, to start there, because that's how they knew me first. They didn't hire me because of my pastoral skills. They had no way of knowing that. They hired me as a preacher. Right. First, as a preacher, is to speak rightly about God. Mm-hmm. And then as a pastor, to try to lead in the shaping of a community who lives in ways that our living says the right thing about God, mm-hmm. too. Um, I- embracing and acknowledging the ways that there have been hurtful things damaging things that have been said about women, about black people, about poor people, about where all of the various social locations that I know something about, um, taking seriously the harm that's been done to my people reminds me to be careful that I don't do harm to other people. Sure. That's how, and, and, and more than that, what's Christian about this is not just not do harm, but to do good. Part of the struggle of I'm, I'm going back to your statement about the healing uh, uh, stories. Part of the struggle, and, and I was just having this conversation this morning with someone, based upon your message last night. You preached about Lazarus and uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and I was having a discussion with someone uh, about that very thing, and this person said to me. The story is cruel because, yeah, he he was raised, but he has to die die, all over again. And you have to go through this whole process of death and and loss and mourning all over again. I'm not sure I get the whole point why everybody's so excited about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And the point that I made to this person is that the story is not about Lazarus. Lazarus is incidental to the story. The story is about the power of Jesus. The story is about that power on display and what that power signifies for us, why we should be drawn to that power. And while I know that in this generation, we tend to look at everything from a personal perspective, everything is myopic, how does this affect me? It's really not about the person. It's not about the man by the pool of, of Bethesda, because there were other people at the pool as well. The scripture only says that Jesus healed that man. Well, what about the other people who were laying right. around the pool as well? And I think that those are legitimate questions to to grapple with, but that's what we're going to do with them. We're going to grapple with them. We're not going to come up with definitive answers for this. But a theological perspective that allows people to take their eyes off of themselves and focus on Christ is a difficult uh, message to convey to people in a generation that causes us to look at us first. So, uh, I mean, uh, so, so here's the thing I think about that. I think that I think we need to have reasonable expectations of people and that that includes the acknowledgement that nothing that we observe, experience, or understand in the world happens outside of the reality of where we sit, stand, look. Mm -hmm. So, um, I I mean, I think that 
I think that there is a, uh, I think there's the capacity for the broadening of empathy and compassion and consideration and concern. I think that's part of the work. Uh, I think that's part of the work of God in our lives. Mm-hmm. But taking seriously, I think we do have to take seriously that feeling that the person you were talking with felt about the cruelty. I mean, there's a bunch of cruelty in that story. Mm -hmm. It's kind of mean of Jesus to take his time. Because whatever's true about whatever happens to Lazarus later, they have four days of extraordinary pain. It's one of the things that I think about even as we get to the resurrection stories. Mm-hmm. Like we preach them like, you know, we're back, black Baptists for early Sunday morning. But if yes. you read the actual narratives, they're filled with tension. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the resurrection stories all have tension. They're, all, they're still afraid. They're still in hiding. They're still uncertain about what to do with Jesus. They're still, like there's, you know, uh, um, Matthew's gospel said they worshiped and some doubted. There's uh, Mark's gospel originally ends with the women leaving the tomb afraid. They we put on a nice happier ending. Um, that's a that's a later, you know, that's a, that's a later addition right. to the gospel of Mark. But if you look at any, n- not one of the gospels a- approach the issue of the resurrection of Jesus as if it's all happiness. Um, the um, the Gospel of Luke, uh, that wonderful see, uh, scene on the the road to Emmaus. They they say um, you don't know what happened. Um, you don't know what happened to Jesus. Mm-hmm. We thought he was going to be our hope. We had hoped he would be the salvation of our people. They're all downtrodden. Some women said he rose from the dead, but that doesn't make sense to us. Every, the Gospels don't present the resurrection of Jesus as the fix to anything, really. Mm-hmm. Um, they're deeply complicated and filled with both tension and, and pathos. And, and so I, I, think that the, I think that the challenge for us as preachers and as, as pastors, even from a textual perspective, even as we interpret the text, is not to rush past the very short-sightedness. Maybe it is short-sightedness. Maybe it, maybe it is myopic. But it's consistent with the human condition, mm-hmm. and it's present in the text. There's mm-hmm. no tension that we experience in the preaching of the gospel that's actually not present in the gospel itself. And so I think that um, the very... Uh, complexity and authenticity and um, transparency about that that so many feel like is the is the key to um, having meaningful interactions particularly with younger adults mm-hmm. I think it's actually present I think there is a faithful I, I deeply believe I don't just think I deeply believe that the faithful witness of the church is the one that can house that that complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that can house that tension, that can house that pain, that can be honest, um, as I tried to do last night in the sermon, as I talked about the worker and the worshiper last night. Mm -hmm. um, so much of the time, I think uh, the, the temptation, I, I recognize the temptation is to tell people, if you just do what I tell you, that you'll, you'll end up all right. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is we can do everything the pastor tells us. We can actually do everything that we can see that God is telling us. And still experience extraordinary pain in ways maybe even that other people wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. The text in, in John 11 says all this happened so that God can be glorified. Correct. So it might have been if they hadn't been Jesus' friends that Lazarus wouldn't have died in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to sit with that. Um, certainly, as we recognize the martyrdom of folks like Martin King, as we recognize the the investment um, that sometimes things go badly for us because we are the children of God. Yes. Sometimes there's no good reason that we can offer for why things go the way they do. The capacity in the church to sit with that tension and be honest about it, I actually think is the key to responding to people who ask that very question, the, the, those sorts of questions. Um, not for us to have a good answer for it. Sometimes we don't have a good answer for it. Yes. But to be honest about the fact that we don't. This is terrible. Mm -hmm. It's terrible that folks can be minding their business, get caught in crossfires, terrible that state-sponsored sponsored violence is terrible. Who knows that better than Christians? Good Friday is all about state-sponsored violence. Yes. And, and to say something hopeful at the same time, which is that God is with you in the midst of it and that God is at work still in the midst of it. Neither needing, we don't have to make I don't have a good answer for why God does or does not do what God does or doesn't do, but God doesn't need me to answer those questions. Sometimes the best witness we can give is just to be honest and say, sis, bruh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't like it either. I get angry too. I'm angry too. Yeah. Yeah. This is terrible. You're not wrong to, to, to be angry as opposed to pushing it aside with platitudes and easy, like, this is terrible, this is painful. So I, I think, and I think that the, 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 the commitment not to do harm will cause us sometimes to just be quiet, which mm -hmm. is probably the best we can do. Mm -hmm. But sometimes our, 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 and I agree with everything you just said, but sometimes our being quiet adds to their frustration as pastors, as as representatives of Christ. I'm coming to you, Rev. I need an answer. Sure. And and, and, and you ain't helping me. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh this same person and, and and people who are familiar with me will know who this person is when I say what I'm about to say. This same person says to me all the time, I don't get the story of of, of, of Job said Job, Job is God and the devil had a bet and and Job was the object of the bet and and God allows all of these terrible things to happen 
to Job, uh, just to see what Job is going to do. No. And they, they equate that with their own life. Sure. I'm going through hell. I'm going through pain. I'm going and God through is playing loss. Games. And God is allowing it God is playing games. to happen. So uh, we could have a long conversation. I have ideas about Job, too. Um, but, but, but let's be clear that part of the reason why folks who go to church or who have gone to church have that view of Job is because that's how we teach it and preach it. Um, I think that I don't I don't read Job that way. I actually read Job. Um, I did some work on Job a couple of years ago um, and preached two sermons, two or three sermons. I don't remember right now, but I preached a couple of sermons on the on the book of Job. Um, I, I see that that I see Job as a. Um, Is doing really important theological work, the kind that I'm talking about, which is to Job, the book of Job highlights the consequences of a theology that says good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Mm -hmm. It questions that theology. Lots of us espouse that theology. And what I would argue is that Job and the accuser are basically asking the same question. They, they harbor the same th theology. Job feels like he doesn't deserve what's happening to him mm -hmm. because he's good. His entire, if you read, the, if you read the def his defense of himself. Now what's deep about it is sometimes we say Job is lying. In contrast, God is the one who says he's perfect and upright. God is the one in Job who says that. God agrees with Job. Mm -hmm. That as it relates, he's, he, you can't find anywhere in the world who's like Job. God agrees with Job that he is not, that as, it, as it relates to his righteousness, he is not deserving of anything that happens to him. The, the, the key question in Job is, is Satan's. Will Job continue to be good if he doesn't think that the reward for goodness is having all of his life work together in ways that are positive. Mm -hmm. Does Job serve you for not? I mean, aren't you, aren't you bankrolling Job's goodness, righteousness, by all the good things that are happening to him? I think it's really a story that is intended. Now, mind you, um, there are some scholars who think Job was written that Job emerged in the time of the exile. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an irony, this is a tension that's present in the Bible itself. Most of the prophets say that the exile happened because you all were unfaithful. These bad things happened because you weren't good people. In that same context emerges the exact opposite perspective to keep us off balance so that we don't land too hard, sorry about that, we don't land too hard in one place. Mm -hmm because landing too hard on the good things happen to good people will cause you, or bad things only happen, bad things came to you because you did the wrong thing. Landing too hard there will cause you to speak wrongly about God. Mm -hmm. By the same token, nothing matters will also cause you to say, speak wrongly about God. 
both things I think are present in the biblical witness so that we so we stay so that we don't land now most of us land on the because we're pastors right we want people to do the right thing right and so we tell them um, this is one of the things that's a challenge to me as a pastor because I'm trying not to tell people if you just pay your tithes you'll never be broke um, I'm, I'm trying not to do that that works people do people give if you do that mm -hmm. even if the, all their lives they still struggle they're waiting for their payday. It's like playing the lottery. Every They play every week. They play that number. Eventually, my ship's coming in. Eventually, my number's going to hit. It's hard to say you should give out of gratitude uh, to advance the work and and out of a sense of responsibility. You, you sitting in here with the lights on, you should pay part of the bill. I mean, that's much harder... It's a much harder sell mm -hmm. than you know than than a, a, a very kind of direct reading of "I'll open the windows of heaven." Mm -hmm. Black folk tithe more than anybody I've ever seen, yes. and many of us are slam broke. So one of two things must be true, right? Either it doesn't work; it's not a direct line like that, like we were told, or something has got to be true, right? So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that the is that the Bible actually, it, uh, it's a, this is a recurring point in our conversation, that the Bible itself is a far more complex, tells a far more complex story than the one that we often feel compelled to tell as preachers. So when I preach, when I preach Job, um, I preach a couple of things. Um, in the beginning of Job, I, I raise this question um, and, I, and I offer, Job, Job says, if I only had an advocate if God would let me have a trial, I know I could win it. I if could I had, win. I could win. I could win my trial. Yes. Part of, but, but, but I'm arguing that the very issue is that Job harbors the fallacious assumption that to prove his innocence would mean that everything that happened to him, none of it should have happened. Which means that he too believes that if you just do the right thing, good things are supposed to happen yeah. for you. Job explodes that. And what Job is, the second sermon in this series is I preach about, the first sermon is called God on Trial. Um, the second sermon I think is called God's Answer. But the thing Job has to decide and, and the conclusion Job comes to is that God is enough, whether he has that stuff or not. It's also important, I think, too, to note that Job's friends, they also have this theology. And so they just assume they do what church people do, which is to defend God. Mm -hmm. It couldn't possibly be the case that you are innocent, because if you were, God would never allow these things to happen to you. But who said Job, Job? Job is pronounced innocent in the first chapter by no one less than God. Yes. And in the end of Job, Job's friends get the smackdown as God says, you better ask Job to pray for you. Job's friends are wrong. Job gains at the end of the 
the at the end of Job, insight, he recognizes that his whole theological foundation was wrong because mm-hmm. he assumed this too. Mm-hmm. That's how I interpret the. I I've I've heard of you from by the hearing of the ears. Now I've seen you with my own eyes, mm-hmm. and and that that feeling of it, it's a, I don't I didn't know what I was talking about. Now we already know. Again, I, I point out. God has already pronounced that his, his impression of himself as faultless and blameless is correct. That's not what he didn't know. He, his theology was wrong. His assumptions about God were wrong and about the way the world is supposed to work. I'll close by saying, I think that's good. Um, I think that's the place from which a kind of liberationist perspective can, that's a place in which he can live. Mm-hmm. Because the version of theology that says, it's part of how Trump got elected, he must, something must be good about him, he's so rich. Lots of evangelicals said that. Mm-hmm. Lots of church-going people said, well, he must be doing something right, right? That's what they say, he must be doing something right. Look how well off he is shattering the assumption that wealth is a sign that you're doing anything right is good theological work. Mm-hmm. It's an important theological work, mm-hmm. particularly when you work with, as we do, black people who by and large, pound for pound in the United States of America, are not rich, far from it, who are yeah. struggling. Yeah. The notion that what you, the favor of God is exemplified in a bank account means we're cursed, by and large, most of us. Mm-hmm. Favor's got to mean something else. Blessing's got to mean something else. God's good intentions toward us have to mean something else. Um, It also leads, I think, where where I am is I'm now at a place where I'm appreciative of the ways that I don't struggle. I'm not nobody. I'm not trying to borrow any struggle. I've already said I don't. I've been persuaded by womanist discourse that that suffering for the sake of suffering benefits nobody. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to look for suffering, but I'm also not. I'm not content with just my well-being. I believe deeply that we are not right until everybody has what they need and that the goal, um, the goal of redemption is the new creation in which everyone, and, and the creation, not, o- not only the new creation of the individual, mm-hmm. although that's part of it, but the, creation, the new creation um, the end of Revelation, we see a new heaven and a new earth. And then Jesus says, behold, I am right now making everything new. The new creation is the point. And what we get to participate in as individuals and what we get to exemplify in community is what that new creation is supposed to look like. How does Christian theology of the sort that you have just described manifest itself in a capitalistic America? We have the capacity 
So we're always going to be. Uh, There's uh, always going to be a tension. We're we're always going to be pushing against. Yes. And we must be pushing against structures that inhibit and undermine the well-being. There of is God's a prevailing people. thought so, so in I this don't, country. So I, what I'm saying is we ought to be fighting. We yeah, ought to be fighting. And we capitalism. should. But the, we ought the, to be fighting there's it. a prevailing thought in this country by those who some espouse themselves to be Christians. That's between them and the Lord. But the, 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 there is this push that somehow egalitarianism is anti Christian and anti-American, and, and, yes. and, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that the church is less theological and more cultural. Sure. And, 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 and we, we bring our culture into the church, and we sprinkle some theology on it in order to make it look like, taste like, feel like what we want it to look, taste, and so, feel like. But that's and exactly that's the how point. they defend yes. capitalism. No, so, but that's exactly the point. And what, what, what liberation theologies of various sorts do is to, to say it's, that it's incumbent upon us to question and interrogate that very, those very cultural predispositions and the ways in which we make meaning in the church that causes other people harm. We sanctify and we sanctify our cultures. I mean, if it was all a wash and mm-hmm. everybody was fine anyway, it would mm-hmm. be less cru- crucial to interrogate. But because most of us are not fine, we must interrogate it and stop simply baptizing it. We have to stop simply baptizing. Our, our cultural and financial and economic systems mm-hmm. as if they're God-created. No, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't think you can make a good case for rugged individualism and capitalism from a Christian perspective. Yes. Sharing is, sharing is essential. As soon as the Holy Spirit falls on the people in the Acts of the Apostles, yes. they begin to share all their stuff. Yes. Why? Because they don't. It's not okay for some of us to have while other of us are lacking. Yes. It's not okay. It is anti-Christian. Yes. In, in, the, in the deepest, most primitive, yes. first sense, their first decision is that it's not okay for some of us to have for, and others of us to be hungry. So how is that lost? Because so, I, 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 I agree I, with you. What, what Acts chapter 2 says is one thing. By the time you get to Acts chapter 6, Ananias and Sapphira are lying about so, uh, so property that greed. they sold. I mean, people and, being greedy and, and they withhold not... the money for themselves. By so the time you about... get to the end of the New Testament, Paul is no longer advocating for selflessness. He's advocating for uh, proportionate giving so that the needs of the poor can... There, there is within the span of the Gospels and, 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 and the closing of the canon, there is a tapering off of that fervor 
of holding everything in common and giving to everyone sure, sure, sure. as they have need. And it only intensifies as we move into the development of the church to where we are today. So what I would say is surely, I think it's important to read, and I do, I read Paul sympathetically, um, more sympathetically than some of my some of the folks who share kind of my politics. Um, I read Paul as he is writing letters. He's in one place in jail often, mm-hmm. writing a letter to some place across the known world that he's signing while he's in jail. Mm-hmm. Christian communities are under threat because people are suspicious of them because all these fancy, these funny ideas Christians have. They're under threat in their in their home community where most of them started in the Jewish community. They're under threat also in the Roman community, mm-hmm. and those two things are interrelated. As Jews have lived, and they finally come to a point where they are, um, as a as a subset. The Romans are kind of leaving them alone, and they're like, y'all are starting some stuff that this is dangerous. Mm -hmm. You see that in the Gospels, too. Like, dude, you're starting stuff that's dangerous to us. I think Paul, I think if you read Paul in that context, you realize that whatever it is Paul thought about things, he recognized the need Especially if you read something like the end of Romans, like every soul be subject to the higher powers and the powers be ordained of God. He's writing this to Rome while he's imprisoned. Right. So what's he going to say? Let's overthrow Caesar. I mean, he's not going to say. Paul was willing. Paul's like, let's stay alive. In the same way you would you would read, uh, um, if I was writing a letter to you from jail, uh, I might not say everything I thought exactly the way I think it. Mm-hmm. I would offer my greetings to Shiloh. I would say, tell them to hold the line. Tell them God is with them. I would say, I think some of the time Paul was willing to subvert some uh, some cultural changes that probably needed to make in mm-hmm. order to needed to be made in order to continue to have freedom to preach the gospel. I think he sometimes said it's more important to be able to tell this story than it is to sort of undermine uh, to undermine the way things work in the world. Um, I think when you read, I think I, I read um, I read some of the, the household codes and the uh, comments regarding the status of women and I read those through that through that lens like mm-hmm. what's more important mm-hmm. and I in particular read his comments about slavery through that lens mm-hmm. what he wants is people to be able to they, he wants folks who, who are enslaved to be able to hear the gospel mm-hmm. if folks who own slaves think that means they won't have their slaves anymore that won't be happening I think he reads all, I, I read I read the letter to Philemon, for example, through that lens. I believe that Paul is telling Philemon to let Onesimus go. I think that's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But I think he's saying it in a way that won't make anybody else who's reading it nervous about the upset of the social order. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so that's where that's how I understand kind of what's going on in the New Testament itself. Um, I, I think this question of power. 
I think the question of who, who does it benefit mm -hmm. to tell the story this way versus that way? Mm -hmm. Who is harmed, who's benefited by the decisions that we make about how we tell the story? This brings us back, right back around to, the, to where we started. Who benefits? What are the implications of telling the story this way? And we have whole histories. We have whole history of people being told. Uh, many black folks initially were Christianized by, by slaveholders who thought they could make better slaves. Mm -hmm. I think we have to contend with that. Um, I think we have to contend with that. There are folks right now who preach in order to make better slaves. I think we have to contend with that. Mm -hmm. um, it's what Cohn did in the, six, the late 60s and early 70s and throughout his work. He contended, he contended with Malcolm X's critique of Christianity. Mm -hmm. He contended with, he made sense, he sought to, to address what he found a compelling critique. Um, and, and I think we've got to continue to have those conversations and make sense. And then, and then most especially not to be the folks who are trying to make slaves of people. The commercialization of religion. I, I just want to hit a couple more topics because we got to go. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm getting stiff sitting in the, in the, the commercialization of religion, the prosperity religion yes. movement, the, yes. the the health and wealth, the yes. naming and claiming, the you're next in line for a miracle that draws thousands, throngs of of sure. people at an at a time when all of the data suggests that church attendance is waning uh, within the nation as a whole and even now within uh, African-American, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the subset of African-American people in this country. How do we stay on the narrow path that leads to heaven when you've got this wide path that's leading folk to hell, and that's what prosperity religion is doing: is leading folks straight to hell. How, how, how do we, how do we maintain that narrow path uh, in, in at, at this age and at this time? So I think we have to go back to the thing that I, that I think I keep saying, which is there's a question that that theology is answering that we need to take seriously. We need to take seriously the kind of desperation that causes a person to empty the last $5 they have out of their pocket. And borrow money. The to, kind of To plant a seed. Right. The kind of, <laughs> I think we have got to take seriously the kind of desperation that leads to that behavior. Mm -hmm. The need that leads to that sounding hopeful. We've got to address what it is that people, the longing and the hunger that that kind of preaching, teaching, theology speaks to. Because as I said already, I mean, you know, they do this, for, they do, they plant seeds for years and never get any money back. I mean, they, it's not like they know there, there's a, there's a desperation involved. 
that's one side of it. The other side of it is you have you also have survivor's guilt for middle class folks, black folks in particular, in those congregations who are doing better than we all have a relative who's not doing well at all. Mm-hmm. You it's that theology that I think that Job is debunking. So it's easier to say to yourself, I was being faithful, God favored me, favor ain't fair, all of that. It's easier to say that than to do the, I think the more truthful work of talking about unjust systems that sometimes benefit a few of us. Mm-hmm. Like how do you deal with the survivor's guilt that I profited within an unjust system? It's easier to say, I made it because God favors me. And then you put the onus for all of what's wrong with the system on God, who wields supernatural power to make your life work Mm -hmm. and your cousin's is falling apart. Mm -hmm. So I think there, I think, I think we've got to, you know, we've got to take it seriously. We have to take seriously what are the questions that folks feel like they're getting answered there that they don't feel like they're getting answered the other thing i would say is as it relates to heaven one of the things is that they're tired of hearing about heaven that they can't see they they can you give me something that's going to help me no and and if you look at it it's like a smorgasbord we can help you raise your children we can help you find a mate we can help you be your best self we can help you we have a gym we can help you be physically fit we got a nutritionist we can help you do that mm-hmm. we got we have we have we have we can help you right now and you get to go to heaven too i think we have to be attentive to that to to the ways that we're not answering the questions that people have we're, we're not at least answering them honestly final question sure uh How do you get people to sit still long enough to listen to what you're saying? I don't. So I, you know, I, I mean, I think you, I think the Bible says line upon line, precept upon precept. It takes a minute. It takes a long time. Yeah. That, that's the thing about pastoral ministry in general that I, you know, you have to lean a long time before the thing moves. And the pieces of it that move are outside of our control. Mm-hmm. Like the, pe- the, the things that people grasp and, and hold on to are not, you know, we're not dialing up, we're not making people from a kit. You know, add a little of this here and a little of that there and you get the image of the, the community or the people that you want. These are people, real life human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do, so I don't, Try, I, I don't do. I don't get them to sit still. What I do do is to preach the same thing all the time. I try to preach what I, I, I believe this, and so I try to preach it consistently, mm-hmm. and trust the working that, that that in the same way that over time I became persuaded that other folks will have that same experience by God's grace. I mean, this is the work is all divine. Um, it's Jesus who says I'm making everything new, not me. And so what I'm trying to do uh, with every sermon and with every kind of dispensation of, of activity in, in our congregation that I have anything to do with, I'm trying to say the 
church is a place for everybody. God mm-hmm. loves everybody. Everybody is welcome. The table is open. God, uh, everybody means everybody. I've, I've preached sermons more than one that says, no, for real, no, for real, no, for real. And mm-hmm. believe me, that's hard for me, too. Mm-hmm. Um, our theme at St. Paul's is we delight in everyone the Savior sends. Not just we, not we tolerate. We delight. And that is, it's a tall order and it's an ethic, and I am challenged by it too. But everybody means everybody. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's a sermon I preach all the time. Everybody means everybody. And I've used, I use everything I, at my disposal. I use, you know, one of the things that's, that's in the last couple of years, we have a, we have a, um, we have a systematic dismantling of rights for the most vulnerable. That for me is the work of the devil. That the, the targeting of the people who are the most vulnerable is the work of the devil. But what it, it but it also is, you know, it, it's a good it's a good object lesson for the co- my congregants who ninety percent of whom wouldn't spit on tr- Trump to put out a fire, right? They don't like him. Right. It, it's been really wonderful in the sense that um, I can show them how they're like them, like him. The kind of narrowness, the xenophobia, mm-hmm. the bigotry, the bitterness, the nastiness, the, those things are present. Maybe we, we aren't, we're not as powerful, but I'm not persuaded if we were as powerful that we wouldn't do just as much damage. Mm-hmm. And that's the place of challenge. Like, okay, so you know, I lead them along, I give them... I say the thing that's easy to say amen to. Um, if you ever hear me saying something that's easy to say amen to, you know it's a trap. Come along here and tell, let's talk about how terrible this behavior is in, in the White House. Let's talk about how terrible it is to mistreat people for their religion. Now let's talk about Islamophobia in the Christian community. Let's talk about how we treat the folks. Philadelphia has a very large black Muslim population. Everybody in our church has somebody in their family who's converted to Islam. Let's talk about how you treat them while we're talking about Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how you treat them. So I think this work, um, it's not easy work. No. But I think we have to have a consistent, we have to say a consistent thing. And then we trust that as we do the part of this that's ours, that God will do whatever God will do. I know it doesn't mean I'll have a big church. doesn't mean even that we won't close. I, I, there's no I mean, thing I've learned is that I, there's no guarantee to any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, what God calls me to do is not the results, though. God calls me to be faithful to the thing that's put at my hand. And then I pray that I... You know, I ask God to be gracious and, and give me the kind of life and, and to have the ministry operate in such a way that I don't feel like a failure. But that has to do with my need not to feel like a failure. Then that, I don't know that that's going to... I mean, Jesus's Jesus' life ends in a pretty low note. Yeah, it does. As tr- Truth be told, some of the, the, one of the kindest people I ever met one of the best preachers I ever heard, never had a church bigger than about 25 or 30 people. It wasn't because they weren't a great person. It wasn't because they weren't a great preacher. They were known to be a great preacher. 
thoughtful, not disorganized. There's no kind of just life. Mm-hmm. We're not guaranteed success by worldly standards. We hope, I hope for it. I mean, I, I would rather be able to see the signs of my labor in some way. But there's tension about that, too. First mm-hmm. Corinthians 15 ends with be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You don't write that if you're Paul, if that's not a question. You don't, that's an answer to a question. Does this matter? He's saying to folks who are thinking about quitting, hang in there. Yeah. It does matter. Yeah. That means there's some signs around them that it doesn't. There's, that means there's some challenges that make them feel like it might not. Yeah. You don't have to say stay in the game to people who are not thinking about quitting. So that's real. That's, it's all, that's in the Bible, too. But we don't read it like we don't read it in the context of the argument that's being made. We just read it as a happy verse. It's not a happy verse. It's a verse. It's the conclusion of a very difficult passage. Very in answer to a very difficult question that arises for us all, given that we're all going to die. Ecclesiastes says Ecclesiastes says it's all in vain. Yeah, because we're all going to die. Paul says, no, no, no. It's not in vain. Both are present in the text, though. Isn't that wonderful? It's the wonderful thing about the Bible. It's all it's present. Like these very like these thorny issues. We can talk about them from both sides. We can say the preacher, the preacher at Ecclesiastes determined it was all vanity and vexation of spirit. And there are times when God knows it feels like it. Paul comes back and says, no, 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 no. There is meaning and purpose in this. And so hang in there, be steadfast and movable. Don't just eat and drink for tomorrow you die. Always abound in the work of the Lord. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I really wish we had more time. I thank you for taking thank the you. time. Thank you. This has been fun. I love talking uh, about all of this. Uh, Dr. Leslie D. Callahan, pastor of the St. Paul's Baptist Church of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, womanist, theologian, college professor, author, blog writer, writer extraordinaire. Thank you for taking the time to come and share with us, and I hope that you'll be back again very soon. I would love to do it again. Thank you. Thank you all for viewing. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next time.